We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Supportive housing. I don't know if you can really argue that they're that supportive when something like, I think during pandemic, something like 35% of overdoses happened in an SRO. I'd have to double check that number, but that's sort of I, my, my belief. I, I would, yeah, I would shut down the SROs. I'm like, I don't, I don't see any reason. I think that they all need to be renovated and brought up to code. I think we should be giving that housing to students and nurses and teachers and police officers and firemen. I don't understand why our city has decided we're just going to have this entrenched couple thousand people living in the SROs, doing drugs in the streets. I think it creates like an epicenter of the drug crisis. I think that like the Tenderloin needs to be completely reimagined. And uh, those hotels should be used as city housing for like families, for poor people, not just for people who want to sort of live off the city, do drugs and wreak havoc. Couldn't have said it better myself. A lot of people would say that what I just said is highly, highly offensive. Right. So those people, those people don't live in reality. The third thing is I think we need to become the number one city in the world to enter into re- drug recovery. And so something that really bothers me is when people are like, oh, we already have so much money. We already spend so much money on homelessness. We should spend less. And I'm my response is, I actually think we should spend more, but we should spend on very different things. I think we should be spending on helping people get into treatment. I think we should have 24-7 available drug treatment and mandatory treatment for people who commit crimes associated with drug use. And I would love to see our city become the number one place in the world to come to like get clean and get your life together. It would be great if our jail had like job training programs and treatment and therapy. And if San Francisco were known for a place to go to heal and to sort of re-enter into the world, as opposed to the place to go to have the highest chance of dying from overdose. So yeah, I'm, I'm particularly passionate about this issue right now. I just, I, it's very hard for me to be here in this city that I care so deeply about and watch our politicians turning it into what I believe is kind of like a death trap for addicts. Well, I'd vote for you. Before we dive into Moment of Zen, I want to tell you about my new interview show, Upstream. Upstream is where I go deeper with some of the world's most interesting thinkers to map the constellation of ideas that matter. On the first season of Upstream, you'll hear from Mark Andreessen, David Sachs, Balaji, Ezra Klein, Joe Lonsdale, and more. Make sure to subscribe and check out the first episode with Mark Andreessen. The link is in the description. Hey, how's it going, Michelle? I don't know if we've ever met. Hello, we have not. Nice to meet you. Dan, she watched the Solana episode and uh, you know was happy to see herself named positively uh, as a supporting character. We're, we're big fans on the show. It was very funny. I'm, I, uh, I don't know if you know, so I'm right now trying to figure out, do I want to start a podcast? Either as a way to continue what I do on Twitter, but open it up to a broader audience. Almost nobody I know, actually, almost none of my friends are on Twitter. Um, or just to do it on the side. I'm trying to figure out to do it on the side or full time. So it's funny you say that you don't have many friends on Twitter, yet you're a kind of a Twitter micro celebrity. Like, how, how did that world happen? You know, my there's like a crowd on Twitter, and it's not my crowd in real life. It's diff- I would say of especially, frankly, um, 
majority of my followers are men and it's an, it's a national audience. So my female friends, I would say 90% of my female friends do not check Twitter more than once a month. And they probably only check Twitter if someone sends them a thread or some of them actually they're like, I like seeing what you're up to. So once in a while, I'll log into Twitter and scroll through your feed to get a sense for what's going on. But they're not, also I'd say the majority of my friends don't really read the news. Why don't they read the news? What are, what are your friends doing? Just find it depressing. Would rather not. Happier, mental health. Happier if they're not aware of what's going on in the world. But what do they do at that time? Instagram. <laughs> Instagram. Oh, okay. So they don't use Twitter and they don't read the news, but they, they have an algorithm feeding them a bunch of information. They're not looking at news stuff on Instagram. They're looking at all their friends' pictures of babies and dogs and... I think if you get to the bottom of that feed, it just starts auto-generating like an infinite amount of content that is revealed preference on on what you're interested in. Yeah, I don't know. I th I'd say people spend a lot of time on Instagram. I mean, obviously, TV, Netflix, books. How do they find out about what to read and to watch? Like, where do they get those recommendations? Big mix. So let me think. I mean, look, some of my friends re do read a lot of news. And uh, I really enjoy talking to those friends because they educate me and push my thinking forward and help me see things in a different light. I'd also say like the audience I have on Twitter is very different than like the social world that I'm a part of. Um, my audience on Twitter is mostly moderate and, and a significant chunk is conservative or Republican. In real life, everyone's Democrat. There's not even a question of that. Uh, I have almost no conservative friends in real life. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that Twitter has become such a refuge for me is like as I've been grappling with getting more and more interested in the world around me and starting to care more about politics and like the past couple of years, seeing the change that can happen, I feel more inspired than ever. In fact, I'm like, I feel like I need to spend significantly more time reading the news and getting up to speed, especially on national and international issues. I tend to focus mostly on local. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it's like a different world. I, Twitter has is definitely a place where often like I feel less lonely. You know, like I'll go to I'll go to an event and like ask people about like, oh, what do you think about X Y Z? And it's like been front page news for a week, and everyone's like, what are you talking about? Especially in San Francisco, by the way. New York has more culture of reading the news because everyone in finance reads the news. Tech people don't really read the news. So when you have all the tech CEOs not reading the news, or a lot of them, then why would the employee, it's just like, uh, it doesn't come up at parties, it doesn't come up in the office. So like, why would someone sit down and spend time reading about the war in Ukraine if, it, if there's no benefit to them? Well, I want to separate the two of those things because I would imagine that the most the people who spend the most time on Twitter are tech people, as we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, right? So, so there is a little bit of a disconnect with that statement of tech people don't read the news, but the, your friends don't use Twitter because it's, it's about news. I, I would agree with you that East Coast and, and people outside of Silicon Valley are more informed about the news in general. Like I, I would say that it's a characteristic of San Francisco is the average person is a little less into the news or politics or, or just kind of the, the stuff that's happening in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. The one thing I want to dig into, though, it's like, so you say all of your friends are Democrats, yet they don't read the news. So then how did those people get to the set of political beliefs that they have? And how would they continue supporting the policies? This is what you're saying is that they're Democrats if they don't if they're not informed. This is all before we start the actual discussion, right? Where's Antonio? I was told there'd be um, four of us. So uh, Antonio is uh, potentially bailing in real time. He says he's sick. I'm trying to wrangle him in. 
All right, I will. I'll address your most recent question because first of all, I don't. This is, it's this not is like good I've, podcasting. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I haven't. It's not like I've sat down with every single person I know and asked, you know, what do you read? How many hours per day? What do you think? I mean, so these are just sort of broad generalizations. Here's what I'll say. So, majority of people in my life do not spend much time on Twitter. I'd say 90% of my friends and people that I engage with in the real world spend less than an hour on Twitter a month. They might check it once in a while. They might like, you know, get a thread sent to them in a group chat that they then, you know, open up. But like the number of times I've sent people a thread and they're like, I, they only look at the first one and, and, and then they give me a comment. I'm like, but did you read the thread? And they're like, oh, I can't see the thread. They're not able to log in. Like they don't remember their password. They're not logged in, right? They don't use the app. And if you ask people, if I ask people, why are you not using Twitter? The answer is usually something along the lines of, I just find it very um, stressful and depressing, which makes sense. It is, uh, I, I, the way I, I sort of explain it sometimes people, when people ask me like, why do you spend so much time there? I'm like, I feel like this is sort of the battlefield of ideas. It's, it is an aggressive place where people are all yelling at one another. And when people say, oh, I find it so upsetting and depressing. How could you spend time? I have so many people in my life who've been begging me to stop tweeting since basically month one. Um, I'd say actually my closest people in my life are all begging me to stop tweeting. Um, they're like, why would you do this? It's so stressful. Look at all those, look at all the angry hatred that you, um, are, are drawing in. All these people are so angry at you. Like, how can you want to spend time there? And the way I explain it is like, you know, I, I studied history in college. I'm a student of history. If you look through history, there have been many people who fought for something they believe in. And a lot of those people picked up swords or guns and went to foreign lands to fight for things they believed in. So for me to hop on Twitter for an hour a day and share my thoughts feels like a very tame version of fighting for what you believe in. You know, I'm not, I'm not like a modern day. I mean, think about like the gladiator days when people are, you know, like think about how much people, people love the gore and people love the, the violence. Um, Twitter's pretty tame compared to other examples in history of people fighting either for something that they care about or fighting for sport. This brings to mind one of my favorite rap lines of all time from the well-known Drake. Uh, I think it's something around the lines of Twitter fingers to trigger fingers or, or something vice versa. Um, but yeah, I, I think Twitter, as you pointed out before, Twitter is not real life. Um, but for a certain segment of people, it is all that matters and it is the arena and it is a blood sport. So I, I think from the world of mimetic ideas, Twitter is the only thing that matters, right? Like maybe a little bit of the blogs and Substack it being bit upstream or a podcast, but where, where is it discussed? It's discussed not at a dinner party. It's discussed on Twitter. Like the, the, the opinion and the meta of whatever is happening is already formed on Twitter before you show up to the cocktail party. Like you're not you're not in real time developing the meta for an issue at, at, in in real life. It's it's happening on Twitter first and then you bring that to the cocktail party where you then kind of trade back and forth. And especially if you're with a bunch of people who are quote the very online, like they already know the meta. So you're already talking about like the the meta of the meta whereas the average person who's getting Twitter maybe sent to them once a month in a group chat, like they're already like two cycles behind. Like th there's no way for them to to stay informed. And so, so you're, you're basically embracing that you, you are a very online person. I am a very online person. Welcome. I'll agree and disagree with what you're saying about things showing up on Twitter before they show up in dinner parties. I think the inverse can be true as well. For example, I think my most outlandish tweet that generated the most, you know, ruffled feathers did come from something I heard at a dinner party 
and I shared it on Twitter. Like last night I was at a dinner party and I heard X and people just went bonkers over it. What was X? <clears throat> I think a lot of people skim the headlines. And so it, you know, when you say I read the news, is it five minutes? Is it 10 minutes? Are you spending, some people spend four hours a day reading the news. I'm not sure that spending four hours a day is a social good. I, I, and I'll say my personal view, and actually I'm really glad you guys touched on this in the Mike Solano interview, which I absolutely adored. My view is I look around at the people I know who are reading the most news, and most of them are very, very dedicated New York Times readers. Like every single day, read the Times. Every single day, listen to the Daily and maybe they spend an hour reading the times. These people are often like the people were at dinner parties. The conversation always goes to Trump. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat someplace where, I've, you know, the conversation goes to Trump and I'm sitting there feeling like I can't even engage because I just avoided all the news on Trump the entire time he was in office. Like I was, I was one of these people who was like, I don't need to follow this. Like, this is just depressing. I can't do anything about it. For me, I'm always frustrated that people aren't following local news because I think that we actually do have the ability to make change locally. So one of the things that I think one of my biggest critiques of San Francisco, especially San Francisco, kind of like the educated people who have power, money, influence, net social networks. A lot of those people have, I think, over, during Trump's um, time in office became so obsessed with Trump that they weren't really paying attention to what was going on in our own backyard. And, it, and what I think that translated to was this extremely dogmatic hatred of any beliefs that could be considered conservative or Republican. They're viewed as Trumpy, you know, Trumper. And so we completely overcorrected, you know, in San Francisco on many policy issues where we're just like anything the right wing believes, like we're going to do the exact opposite. And, and, um, and then you have a city that is facing the issues of San Francisco. I think, I think we struggled tremendously from Trump derangement syndrome. There's like uh, some long-term unintended consequences that are downstream from his presidency. Do you do you ever bring up the term TDS with your friends? No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I. <laughs> no, I do not. That's like a very coded online word of like you're you're basically a conservative if you believe in TDS. Because because from no. my perspective, like anytime I talk to someone who's on the educated side, that's call it on the left. If you if you try to call you know, for those who don't know, Trump derangement syndrome, TDS, uh, I think is a kind of phenomenon where basically people to the point, they Trump bad. So therefore everything associated with Trump is bad. Republican and conservative associated with Trump. Therefore Republican and conservative is bad. I, I do think from a historical perspective though, that this is, this has always been the case. And, and we just prior to Trump, like we had eight years of Obama. So the collective memory, and it was like way less online at that point. But basically, people traded the bush the same way. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. 
Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles, whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use, and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. And and now people like kind of have this, this uh, you know, Bush the painter, and he's kind of like a cuddly teddy bear. Yeah, war in Iraq, but that was neocons. It wasn't necessarily, but like people are, you know, rosy picture version of Bush, but Bush was hated just as much, especially in a place like San Francisco. I wasn't there. At the yeah, time, but I was in so, high school so I, at the time. I, I do think, I do think that's just always in vogue, but I do think Trump probably coupled with, you know, how antagonistic he is and the fact that he was tweeting every day and creating a news cycle was unprecedented relative to uh, the modern era. How about that? Right. Like Bush, Bush senior didn't, didn't <laughs> generate that level of hate. Well, what was the thing that you, um, the, the most controversial thing that you heard at a dinner party? Oh God. Did you, I, well, okay. Before we go down that, I, that path, um, you do we need to like already. start over again and start from like, I'm curious what we, what we, what you want to talk about today. I, I'm not sure I want my leading lines here to be, Oh, all my friends don't read the news and don't care about the world. Like, don't worry. This is a, a casual talk show podcast. We kind of just launch into it. Michelle, welcome to moment of Zen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's all I was waiting for. Let me, let me, Give context so that you don't feel like you're being blindsided. I, I was just kind of picking on the, on the comment. My friends don't read the news because, to be fair, I think most of the people I interact with in real life, they they don't spend too too much time on the news. Or to your point, they like one click in in terms of of skimming headlines. Um, I probably have I would say five to ten percent of friends who they spend a lot of time reading those. That they do that for entertainment. Um, they tend to be the ones where you go out to dinner with them and they want to just all they want to do is talk about the latest story. Uh, that is the you know the zeitgeist for the, that twenty four hour period, but I think that the problem with the news is is there is a it takes an enormous amount of time to get to a level of comprehension where you're able to parse all of this information that's coming at you, have the historical context, have the modern context, and and kind of like understand how all the pieces fit into each other, like in terms from a systems thinking standpoint, like you how U.S. politics works. Um, you know, kind of who all the players are, like, what are their backstories? Like, who, who are they beholden to? Like, kind of fitting that all in your head, that takes up a lot of space. And so if you're not willing to actually do that, just arbitrarily saying, oh, I'm going to start reading the news today. It's like, well, you better have Wikipedia handy and, and a few hours to like get informed on this. Because otherwise, it's just kind of this deluge of, of information that it's, it's very hard to make sense of. So I think it's a very natural strategy for most people, given that they don't want to spend that much time to skim the headlines and thus the headlines being written by editors 
with a kind of very distinct point of view from the paper, right? The classic journalist thing is like, oh, I didn't write the headline. I wrote the article, but I didn't write the headline. Well, if, if you're writing the headline and you know most people read the headline, maybe the first paragraph, you're going to tend to edit it in a way that will kind of create it, a certain impression, even if in the story they can then go point, oh, well, we, we had that quote or we did mention that in paragraph seven. Well, it's like, if, if you know the de facto way people read the noses, those little snippets, that's where some of these games, I think, start to happen. And and, and if that is a, a widespread pattern, which I, I do think it is, then I think people tend to have these kind of like somewhat surface level opinions because they just haven't invested the time. And, and that's not a judgment on them. I actually don't think it's it's productive for most people to be going and reading news at, at to the extreme level. That said, I, I do think, I mean, this is a broader topic, but like a baseline level of historical knowledge or understanding. If you're a person who's basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm an educated person in society and I kind of want to have opinions on how we should be doing things, you can't obviously test for that. But to a certain degree, like when, when you don't exist in, in that frame and have an understanding of especially history, um, you, you end up in situations where you're electing prosecutors in San Francisco who let fentanyl dealers and, and you know, kind of like, convicted felons out on the street who then repeat whatever crime that put them in jail to begin with. And so, so I think I, I, my point of view is actually a lot of it is just ignorance around, like, we've tried a lot of things in the past and they didn't work. And maybe we should understand why those things didn't work before we make those same mistakes again. This is a meaty topic. I mean, many different things to respond to there. This didn't work in the past is, I think, one of my least favorite phrases. I see it so much, especially because I am very, very vocal about fentanyl and meth and the destruction that I think they are causing in our country and the nonstop responses, oh, we already had a war on drugs and it failed. Failed policies, failed policies. It's already broken. And there's like this immediate jump to just say, oh, and then I'll ask, like, what, what do you, how do you define failure? Like, what, why do you believe this? And there's a lack of nuance. What, what do you think we, we tried and failed with in the past on the war on drugs for fentanyl and meth? This is an issue I'm, I'm pretty passionate about as well. I think it's the single most important issue in the country that we're not putting uh, resources against at a national level. First of all, the war on drugs was a 50-year period ish. I think that the first time I, I still think it's going on. Yeah. So it's still <laughs> it's, going on. It started it's, in like the seventies. It's like right? the war so, on terror. You, you don't ever stop having a war on terror or war on drugs. It's just kind of an ongoing thing. Although I'd say that the activists that I am sort of opposed to, yeah, I mean, okay, what do, let's start with the fact that the drugs were very, very different back in the eighties and nineties. You cannot even begin to compare crack and heroin to meth and fentanyl. They're completely different levels of toxicity. So while is where you could do heroin for 20 years and survive, that's not going to happen with fentanyl. Like no one can do like this. Is the, the numbers are showing the chance you're going to die are tremendous. Additionally, you can do crack and you can quit and you'll be fine for the most part. Meth does tremendous damage to the brain. So when people, the longer someone's using meth, the more damage their thinking is, their decision making, like th this is, these are seriously destructive. Additionally, with the overdoses of both of them, every time you overdose, you stop breathing and your brain is deprived of oxygen, which does tremendous damage to your brain. So when people say things like, oh, we just need more overdoses to be reversed and everything will be fine, it's actually not true. We have people now, like tens of thousands of people in California alone, whose brains have just been eviscerated by these drugs 
the longer we sort of let people stay in the streets and keep doing them, the more damage that will be done until they eventually die for the most part. I don't think there's very many people who are hooked on meth and fentanyl who like wake up one day and decide to stop doing those drugs, but that definitely did happen for people who were doing crack and heroin. Wait, but so so I agree with all that. Let's let's go back to the point of you know what what's been tried in the past, what's worked, what's not, right? So our 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 version of kind of like okay, we're just going to decarcerate and allow people to go back on the street. We're not going to prosecute drug crimes because of a failed policy in the past, uh, taking people and putting them in jail or a prison for marijuana-related offenses, right? Disproportionate impact on black males and arguably like victimless crimes for the most part. You can get into arguments on, on cannabis and marijuana, but the reality is it's now legal in the U.S., right? Effectively. In some states. Yeah, but I mean, like, the biggest population states, it's, it's legal. So it's like, if you just take as a percentage of the U.S., it is more than 50% of the population, I think, in the country has, has easily accessible over some version of the counter marijuana. I, I think we, we could go look up the tape. Maybe, maybe it's 40% of the population. But, but basically, we're at a place where this is treated like alcohol. We tax it. You know, there, there are definitely societal repercussions uh, of, of having that. You have all these like zombie employees and things like that. So that's a whole other topic. But from a practical standpoint, we put a bunch of people in prison for selling weed. Probably not a good, good policy. However, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of like the, the point you make on the, on the toxicity of, of these substances, the fact that fentanyl is 100x the potency of heroin. So if you think about, I have to bring 100 pounds of heroin, which I, by the way, had to grow in, in Mexico, and I have to bring that across the border. That's a lot harder, and you can't really grow heroin in the U.S., versus something that is synthetically made in a lab that then can be shipped in, you know, 100, uh, 100th the size package across the border and then recut with, you know, some baking soda and a ninja bullet or whatever whatever the, the thing that they do. So... That I think I agree with is like, okay, so this is a, a fundamentally new threat and we, we should, we should have a new set of policies to, to deal with this. Like, so I, I'm totally, in, but like part of that is like, you should have the understanding of the history. Like you outlined, it's like, we're, we're not dealing with the same thing, but that that's a historical knowledge set that you have that the, I think the average person, if you were to ask your, you know, kind of the average educated person, they don't have to be left or right. It's just, you know, they, they have some baseline of education and you were to ask them, you were to say, has the, you know, are drugs that much different than they were even 10 years ago? I think that they wouldn't think so. And and that's just like a lack of understanding of like how bad fentanyl is, how pervasive it's become. And then this this other component that you mentioned, which I think doesn't get anybody talking about it for the most part, is that meth has fundamentally changed from kind of this, uh, you know, redneck thing in a like Breaking Bad style at the beginning of Breaking Bad that they're making the meth in a, in a trailer. And then by the end of Breaking Bad that they're making in a super lab in Mexico, which is where most of the meth is now made, right? So, so it's, it's a completely different thing. And, and going back to this idea of the war on drugs, we put a set of policies in place, specifically in the 1980s with Reagan, that really hasn't been updated. And, and so it's just like, we, we need a completely fresh approach to the, the new villain, which is these, these super, super toxic and deadly drugs that are coming across the border. And, and, and it's not even like a small mom and pop type situation it these are massive uh organized drug you know terrorist organizations that are wreaking havoc in our, our biggest trading partner south of the border and and then wreaking havoc on on american streets because we we don't want to prosecute quote drug workers 
that's 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 term for drug dealers. But uh, the very online on Twitter like to to redefine some of these uh, criminals as uh, somehow the victim. Mm-hmm. Yep. How, how do you? How do you? I just I just released last week a two hour episode of my new podcast called Notes from the Front with Sam Quinones, who wrote the book Dreamland and then uh, The Least of Us, which is about the new meth and fentanyl crisis. So we go into tremendous amount of depth on everything you just said. Wait, so that's where I know most of this stuff from. So, so I, now I'm going to recommend that podcast to people because oh, I, I always you. want oh, people to read both it. of those books and then they don't go read them. So listening to a two-hour podcast on, on this topic from the, the guy who wrote these books, I think it sounds great. I got to shorten it. I'm getting feedback it's too long and the first hour could be uh, shortened up. So I'm actually, that might be on my to-do list for later this afternoon. But yes, the drugs are completely different. I, I think in some ways, I, I look, I push back on one thing you said. You said we need a completely new approach. I'm not sure we need a completely new approach. I feel like every country in the world has been dealing with drug problems for centuries, right? You look at, if you go to Singapore and you go to the Singapore Museum, they have a whole exhibit on opium war and what happened in Singapore at the time when opium was exploding there. They had like 500 opium dens and thousands and thousands of people were getting highly addicted to opium and they were spending all their money on opium instead of food. And so they were starving to death and they had hundreds of people dying of starvation. And they show these pictures of people lying in these opium dens. It's like black and white photos. You see, and they look like Holocaust survivors. You know, like 20 men lying there smoking pipes, rail thin. Look like they're on the brink of death, which they were. So Singapore made a dramatic decision. They're like, we are shutting this down. It's We can't have all our people dying of starvation because they're addicted to drugs. Like, no more. The party's over. We're shutting every single opium den in town. So they shut the hundreds of opium dens. They instituted very, very strict laws around dealers. And I just asked ChatGPT the other day, how many drug overdose deaths a year does Singapore have? They have about 10. 10 deaths a year. Meanwhile, the United States- they execute all the drug dealers also? But they don't have to, they didn't execute that many people. I mean, I talked about this with um, Balaji. He's like, yeah, they execute like five people over the course of a decade. No, no, when they they made that policy though. Oh yeah, they did. Back in the 1800s. Yes, they were very strict. I don't know how many people they ultimately prosecuted or executed or what, but they certainly cracked down and it solved the issue. They have extremely, extremely strict laws on drug dealing. If you, when you land in Singapore, there's a big sign that says drug, uh, drug traffickers will be executed. I think it says, or will be right. It doesn't say they will be prosecuted. It's like they will be. Yeah. It's very strict. They have 10 overdoses a year. We have a hundred thousand overdoses a year. So, and it's mostly young people who are overdosing in our country. This is not like a bunch of 80 and 90 year olds who have a lot of comorbidities are dying natural deaths. This is, this is like, these are unnecessary deaths. Like these, none of these deaths need to happen. So then the question becomes, how do we feel as a society about having a hundred thousand people a hundred thousand people a year die? I mean, they certainly can't speak for themselves about what policies they think would have saved their lives. They're they're gone. And this is the thing that's just infuriating me about San Francisco government is the people speaking on behalf of the addicted. I mean, I, I it, I'm not sure what their goals are. If the goal is to save lives, you would have a very different set of responses than what we're doing right now. Right. But I, I, I think the root causes, to your point, we have drug dealers. They're not held accountable and they're not. Yeah. And we overcorrected from a, a failed policy with with cannabis, marijuana, 
which yeah, you know, I, I don't see any good argument. I've never seen any good argument that putting people for for dealing some small amount of weed, putting them in a you know life life in jail or twenty years in in, in prison, not jail, is is a good policy. And and so California, you know, New Jim Crow book, like all this kind of decarceration movement. Actually, I think generally probably a good thing to not have as many people in in prison. But but there's a there's a line in the sand that we need to draw that if you are violent, so you know, you're murdering people, you're domestic abuse, whatever whatever the kind of line in the sand we want to say is like you you are crossing the line from a violent standpoint. That's that's you know worthy of putting you in prison. And then we have to have a line in the sand around certain types of drugs, which at a federal level we already have schedule like classes of substances so that to me just needs to be updated in a way where you there are federal penalties and then because if the states don't want to do it you have to have the federal stuff and so drug dealer on the the corner in san francisco uh you know fifth in market if you have fentanyl on your possession like we, we need to figure out ways of being able to prosecute especially if the local law enforcement is too too progressive and woke to say Oh well, this person's a drug worker, and they they did they didn't have the same educational opportunities, so dealing fentanyl is not as bad, right? But like, it's just it's just a, it's a completely broken set of policies, and so if if we can't do it at the California level, which admirable that you want to try to change it at a local and and, and state level, we we should be updating it at a federal level because it it's coming not you know it, technically California has a border, so. But, it, but it's it's a, a national issue, right? Fentanyl kills people in Chicago. There is no direct source of fentanyl in Chicago. It's coming across the border in Texas. And so that that's where I, I think as a society, I agree with you. We need to make this like a, a top priority. And, and I would love to see someone running in 2024, or maybe it takes the next cycle. 2028 running as a national issue is like a top issue to, to solve. Because it's to your point, it's, it's the leading cause of death for people under the age of what, 60? Right? Is, is fentanyl overdose. And, 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 you know, we have all these stupid policies in San Francisco around wearing masks and, and you know, for COVID. And, and the number of COVID deaths relative to were, was lower in San Francisco than fentanyl deaths. Yeah, 2X. What's the mask policy for fentanyl? So we let the drug dealers continue on the street. I think the book, The New Jim Crow, had a tremendous impact. And there were a lot of issues with that book. I can't remember where I read a good cr- critique of it, but... There were a bunch of things left out of that book. That book was really, I, I started, re- I read like half of it. Um, the argument that it, that it makes is so emotionally triggering. Um, I think, yes, it basically makes the state, it makes the claim or, you know, it says thousands and thousands of people were unfairly and, um, you know, un- like unconscionably sent to prison because of dealing marijuana. And so I agree. I agree that that was wrong. I think um, I don't think that selling marijuana should be treated like a violent offense. And the outcome of that is, yes, you have all these people now who are like, you can't arrest drug dealers like that's just wrong. Um, And like, look what you know, it's racist and it hurts people who are trafficked and poor and this and that. I just yeah, I think that you have in this is an example where it's like, we used the wrong policy on the wrong drug, and now it has hurt our ability to use that policy on the drug that really needs it. I agree. So it's like what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked in the past. We got to make sure we we understand that, and then apply like the new set of facts on the ground to to update the issue. So so one thing on the new Jim Crow book, which I, I do recommend people at least try to listen to a podcast or read because it is pretty influential. Like when you talk to to folks who are very into like progressive 
like whether that's uh, DAs or, or it, it, I think it really is kind of upstream of a lot of that. If you just go look, and, and, and the FBI has actually started to reduce the amount of information I think that they put out from crime statistics because statistics start to get racist. So they, they've changed their policies. But pre-COVID, so if you go to like 2019 crime statistics, um, when they used to just kind of report this stuff, they also have incarceration uh, statistics. And, and over the last 10 years, there's been a significant amount of decarceration at the, the I think, state level more than the federal level. Um, but it shows the reason people are in federal prison and then state prisons and then what percentage are in pr private prisons versus like, you know, real uh, government uh, run prisons. There isn't a lot of uh, juice left to squeeze on, on the, the prison time thing. They, they removed, especially in California, they removed a lot of people from prison for the marijuana related offenses. And so now you're starting to get into offenses that are, are pretty nasty. It's like murder, rape. Uh, you know, violent uh, assault and battery. Like, so, so, so you're now getting into a world where, okay, did those things actually happen or not? Uh, you know, I'm sure there are cases that where they didn't happen, but unless you think that the, the entire justice system in the U S is completely corrupt and, and doesn't work, which I think there's a group of people who would try to tell you that yet. Then when uh, the, the police officer who, who was responsible for the death of George Floyd uh, got Put in prison by a jury, then the justice system isn't corrupt. So, so it, it's it's not a completely consistent system. When when it, the justice system goes the way they want, they they then say it works. When it doesn't, the the system's corrupt. But I think generally, if, if you were to just step back and say, outside of some of these these antiquated laws, there's another law around crack cocaine treatment versus uh, cocaine treatment was like a white versus black thing, right? It's like crack cocaine was a, uh, inner city black disproportionate impact more people went to jail than if you're kind of like a white person who was using regular cocaine like th those laws didn't impact you as much but i think just generally um that decarceration movement like th there's not much more juice left in that in that lemon and so what you're getting is now it's like well bail is bad and like keeping a, a violent criminal off the street is racist because you know white people can get uh, a bond uh, bail bond and, and and black people can't. And so so I think that that's where you, you see these stories in San Francisco now of like violent, violent felon gets picked up by the police. The, you know, progressive DA or and this happens in L.A. too, because Gascon used to be in San Francisco. Um, they let the people out right away and then they go and commit a new crime in the time that they're supposed to be before their their hearing. But I don't know, I, I'd be curious, like, so what do you think changes in San Francisco? Like people have been saying this for the, the entire time I was there for the 10 years. Oh, we're going to, you know, change the city. We're going to get a new mayor elected. That's, you know, pro building, pro fixing, you know, market street, the tenderloin. And, and that hasn't happened. So what do you, what do you think? And, and you said you listened to the salon episode. So I'd be curious on your take of like, how do you fix San Francisco? Public hangings, of course. Um, my other most. You heard it at a dinner party. Yeah, no, that one. All right. I'm happy to discuss that, actually, if you want to go there. But um, my understanding is that things tend to go in waves on in society of kind of more or less strict around crime. If you look back at the 1980s and 1990s, it was not ultimately white, wealthy New Yorkers who were pushing for the crackdown on drugs. It was moms, mostly black from places like the Bronx and Harlem who were begging the city to crack down on drugs. They're like, this is ruining our community and our neighborhoods and our children. 
Croc specifically was linked to an enormous amount of crime in New York in the 90s. And I read a fabulous book on this um, by Bill Braddon. He was the chief of police under Giuliani. And they, uh, he, at one point in the book, it's like two thirds of the way through, he talks about a conversation he had where he went to all the top people in the police department. And it was like, what percent of crime do you think would be t- uh, gone if we crack down on drugs? And some people were like 30%. Some people said 70%. Basically everyone agreed. Like if we go after the dealers, crime is going to plummet. And so that's exactly what they did. They went really, really, really hard after the dealers. They, they swarmed areas that were known for drug dealing. They'd have like a ton of cops descend and arrest a ton of people. It happened very quickly. In the course of a couple months, they arrested just tremendous numbers of dealers and crime did plummet. And he talks in the book about, you know, his critics, people would say, oh, well, crime plummeted across the whole United States. So it had nothing to do with your efforts to crack down on drugs. You know, this was a national trend. And his response is something like half the crimes in the country were coming from New York and we cut the crime rate in half. So yeah, the national rate went down. It was driven by the plummeting crime in New York. I think what it will take for things to change in San Francisco is it's sort of like the message needs to come from the right people. I think that when the people of the Tenderloin say this is out of control or when people who are like the people who are really affected by what's going on here, it's, I think that you know when homeowners start seeing their house valuations go down, um, I think things are going to change. I think it has to come from the right people. I think someone like me, like I can share stuff online and, you know, my goal is, is to like sort of sh- shine a light on data or maybe alternative points of view. But ultimately, I don't think a bunch of people in, say, Pacific Heights saying we need to change the, you know, our policies around drugs are going to have as much as an imp- of an impact um, as the people from the neighborhoods most impacted. And, and what do they say, people in the neighborhoods most impacted? Oh, my God. They're like the Tenderloin, people that live in the Tenderloin, all the immigrants with children in the Tenderloin are infuriated. And I'm really curious. I mean, they're just like, why should our children have to walk to school through this drug scene? And so why isn't it changing? Because you're saying the, pe- the right people need to say it. People in Tenderloin, they are saying it or they're feeling it. So what needs to happen that's not happening? I think public opinion needs to shift more. I think I think things have to probably get a little worse before they get better. It needs to sort of become so obvious that you can't deny it. Right now, our politicians are still pushing for safe injection sites. That's their answer to the drug crisis. They're like, we need safe injection sites, overdose re- reversal sites. I did some analysis this morning and they're, and they're saying things like, oh, we've our overdoses spiked the first three months of this year. And, um, that's right after we closed the ten, you know, the safe injection tenderloin center. So obviously it's because we closed it and we need to have more safe injection sites. I, this morning I actually pulled all the overdose data from 2020, 2021, and 2022. And instead of looking at how many overdoses we have in the first three months of 2023 and comparing that to the last three months of 2022, which I think does not make sense at all. There's all these factors around weather um, and like sort of cyclical things like, uh, People doing drugs in the middle of a rainstorm in a tent is very different than like out in the streets in the hot summer. On a on a, if you compare the months that the the safe injection site was open to the months it wasn't, so compare January to January, February to February, et cetera. Out of the eleven months that the safe injection site was open, 
In seven of those months, more people died of overdoses in San Francisco than before the site was open. No one has shared that data. That data has not been published. Like, I just put it up today. It's going viral. But like, my question is, does does the mayor know this? Is that why they shut down the $22 million experiment? Like, where where's the... Like, someone must know this. Like, this, I, I'm sort of, I'm just very befuddled about how no one did this analysis. It feels like a very simple, it took me about 15 minutes to do the analysis. I know I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here. I guess, I think things change when, when, when people are, when we are held, there's more accountability and honesty. But why do you think people aren't holding them accountable, right? Like, where's the, you know, the journalists? Because this, this issue became political. And the left has one set of beliefs and the right has another set of beliefs and no one wants to budge. I think the left says the war on drugs was bad. The war on drugs failed. You can't reduce the supply. You're always going to have supply. You've got to fix the, the root causes of addiction, which are poverty, mental illness. And, and, the, and there's this narrative and there's like these talking points and there's zero data from what I can tell to back it up. But it is deeply believed and to an almost religious-esque I think it's religious-esque. And you look at all the activists in town. I mean, like anyone who has differing beliefs from these is like chased out of town. Like if I weren't from here, I would have been chased out of town a long time ago. Like the people are infuriated at me for what I'm saying. I'm giving the the alternative point of view. But that's the issue, right? So if I'm, I'm, I'm just an average person and I think of myself as I live in San Francisco, so I'm going to be a little left of center, right? Just a little bit more liberal. The person who ends up being my representative, just by virtue of the city, is going to be much more liberal than than I am, right? And because that's just the the nature of the city. And so now that person certainly doesn't want to get uh, points taken away by the, the very online liberal people or the progressive activists in the state of California. And so if you do anything that crosses the the kind of like set of, of beliefs that to your point about like, oh, the war on drugs is racist. Like that's basically the the you know decarceration. Don't prosecute drug dealers on the street. So so you you're not willing to do that. You basically just don't engage with that issue as the as the supervisor, because you realize that if you say anything that could be coded as oh now you're racist, you're gonna have you're gonna get the progressive side of the party really hitting you hard. And so now if I'm the average person, I don't hear my my supervisor talking about it in in any way that is coded towards like what I'm supposed to believe. And to your point about people not reading the news, like there's already not going to be any coverage of it because as if I'm in that world, I don't want to rock the boat. So, so basically you get like these issues really have to bubble up and and it just becomes a, a talking point on Fox news nationally of like, look how bad San Francisco is, but that actually has a, a negative impact on, on the perception from the average person because now Fox news is talking about it. So therefore it must be fake. Like it, it's the opposite of whatever's happening when the reality is, is it's it's probably closer to what Fox News is saying. I'm sure they're exaggerating it than the kind of inaction that is not being taken at the, at the kind of local level. Yes, I completely agree. Tribalism. What you're talking about is tribalism. Team Blue. We're on Team Blue. Good, good liberals. We're all good liberals here. The other thing is, to your point about news, there is no local news anymore. Like how many how many reporters does the San Francisco Chronicle have? One. And then how many people are actually reading that every day? Oh, yeah. That's actually been really surprising is how few people read local news. And now that they're paywalling so many things, I'll send articles to people. And they're like, oh, sorry, I can't read it. Can you send me a PDF? I'm like, you live in San Francisco. I have heard you complain about this city hour upon hour. And you don't subscribe to the Chronicle? Like, how 
how? Right. So 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 you you hollowed out the the local information consumption with these online platforms that are designed for global, right? Like you want to see the global blood sport, like the very online of like what what is the what is the issue du jour globally, right? Like uh, on team blue versus red or you know, left versus right. And and so it's like you're you're spending more time not not you but like the average person is spending more time about what Chris Rufo is sta- saying about critical race theory in Florida or Virginia than you are about your your local issue, right? And it's like talk about things that you have no impact over and, and it really doesn't matter, but but like wh- who's actually you know making the issues more local? I mean you're doing it on Twitter and like this is like more people should be using Twitter. Gary Tan is doing it, right? And you're taking the arrows from from folks who, you know, are either hiding behind non-accounts and just saying terrible things to you or people who are willing to do that, you know, with their real name. I don't don't know. Like I I I was looking for this tweet that I saw today where it shared um, this philosophy of a journalist from back in the day. I can't remember, but it was something like, this is not show business. There's a book I read by Matt Tybee called Hate Inc. And it tracks how the media became increasingly polarized because they basically were rewarded financially for doing so. The more you stoke outrage, the more you rile up your base, you get people in, like reading eyeballs in a world of ads. That's what drives profits. And this is actually something that I've been thinking about a ton. I feel like there's a real lack of moderate media. And in my opinion, all the media should be moderate, right? Like maybe you have some, you should could have some blogs or um, I, I'm like astounded at how there's such a lack of conservative like respectable media. I mean, also I would say almost everyone I know in San Francisco, New York is not watching Fox News. So not aware of how much San Francisco has been attacked. Some people watch it just to sort of see the other side. But um, when you have a society where everyone's reading the same things, mainly the New York Times, and the New York Times has become, I would say it's no longer center left. I think it's left. It's an echo chamber. I, I, this is why I'm. This is why I'm considering starting... A company around this, although I'm not. Eric and I were just discussing this. I'm. I'm. I think that there's a real gap in the market here. I don't know if there's a market in that gap, but I think there's a, an absolute lack of moderate media. And that doesn't necessarily mean you take the middle of the road stance on everything, but it means you would look at alternative points of view on things. Um, I would bet you that I would bet you 99% or more of the people that work at NPR are registered Democrats. I, I like that's like a sense I get. And I would bet you that 99% or more of the people that work at the Chronicle are registered Democrats. It makes sense why a lot of people aren't reading the news if they don't trust the news, right? If you don't trust the media, why would you engage with it? I think we have a, a real bra- breakdown of trust. So two, two things to respond to there. So I think one, from an intellectual honesty standpoint, I think the right was the first to kind of make this move in terms of real, the, the quote, hate ink, Roger Ailes figured this out, right? He was working for Nixon in 68. And then he went and start, started Fox News with Rupert Murdoch went on, on cable, right? Like the, the idea that you could kind of go and, and do that, which now I think it's just completely polarized on, on, on both sides of the spectrum. More of the media, I think, to your point, is probably left. I don't think there is any right wing respectable like the wall street journal is the closest thing to it because the you would say that the news section is probably moderate or or center left and then the the editorial pages is, is is much harder right but i but i think that the the challenge of 
news, and, and this is something I've talked with Solana, is that, to your point, most people don't want to read news. Like they don't, it's like too depressing for them or it, and, and I think there is this, you know, from a historical standpoint, the reason newspapers were popular is there was no internet. So it was just a bundle. It was a bundle of all of the different things that potentially you'd want to see every day, right? It was your, your actual, like national news, local news, like, you know, opinion, the the comic pages, the classifieds, like there's a zillion different reasons you would buy this bundle that was the daily newspaper. And you might got exposed to a little bit of the the stuff on the side, right? It, it, in the same way that if you if everyone was using Twitter or or a feed app, TikTok or, or Instagram, which I, I still think I would imagine that the average person is exposed to a little bit of news through those apps, you're you're getting the bundle of that that daily delivery platform of information. And and based on the editorial, the algorithm, you're you're gonna see other things, whether it's on the front page or, uh, you know, as you're flipping through. And so I that's that's where I think I, I could be wrong here, but I think that the market for actual news is very very small. It's it's like weird people like us who actually like they we we find it interesting and entertaining, and then the average person, they're kind of like, hey, I, I I have so many hours outside of like work and kids. Like, just give me something that's interesting and entertaining. <laughs> I, I don't want another thing. It's, it's, it feels like homework, right? I wish I read the news a lot more. I agree. It is very depressing, generally. And what I'm really seeking is more investigative analysis that is um, sort of beyond politics. Like, I, in, I was thinking about this day. I went on a walk with my dog. And I was like, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a media company where every single person on staff was a registered independent? What would they produce? Yeah. Or even if you're a registered whatever, the ability for you to write an article and, and maybe AI actually makes this easier with GPT. It's it's you put article X and then just say, rewrite this article with the opposing viewpoint. And then the the AI, and obviously there are issues if the AI has a political bent, whatever. The AI does have a political bent, by the way. I've been fighting with chat GPT nonstop. I'm trying to make it create debates between Margaret Thatcher and Barack Obama on harm reduction. And I've been slotting in various politicians. And it keeps saying, like, no one would ever argue against harm reduction. It's just, like, really pushing. It's like harm reduction saves lives. It keeps it keeps um, pushing. Yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm having a trust issue with... Well, you'll have to wait for Truth GPT from Elon to be able to have them spar against each other. But but I think that is actually one interesting thing to think about is like if if you basically get to a world where you have a bunch of competing LLMs or or whatever ends up replacing them, and you can say, hey, team of team of rivals, right? To use the the Lincoln phrase, um, just take this article and write three versions. Write the most neutral version of it. Write the most left leaning version with citations and right leaning. And then, and, and then you have another AI synthesize the three and it's like, who, who made the best argument or who had the most points or whatever. Like, I, I think that we're on the verge of actually having some of that happen. And, and to give biology credit, like he, he had been talking about this for a long time of like the idea that you could have a Chrome extension that would rewrite the article for you. And, and now we're actually at the point where the, the technology is, is capable of doing some of this stuff. Can I pop in here for a second? So Dan, I'd be curious to know, do you think AI will replace podcast hosts? Because, you know, as I've been thinking about launching some sort of moderate-oriented media organization, the, the question sort of gnawing at me in the back of my mind is like, well, wh- why won't AI just replace all this? Um, 
Like if I can, if I can have AI create a 300 word op-ed in the voice of Margaret Thatcher critiquing San Francisco's drug policies, like why do I need to write that piece? Because what will happen is if everyone has access to that, that will become commodity. So therefore our attention is is scarce in outside of you inventing time machine or, or time dilation or something that allows you to get more time. Time is always going to be scarce. So attention is the ultimate currency. So therefore, where do people want to put their attention? People want to put their attention in things that they find to be either status oriented, scarce. Like so, so I think what it'll do is it'll shift the the format, right? So a produced podcast where we, you know, have this conversation and it can be auto edited and can replace all the words and make us sound 20 or 30% smarter when we make citations, right? Like all that stuff is just going to happen. If you just look at Descript, the company from Andrew Mason, the guy who created. I use uh, it. I use Descript every day. Right. So, so, <laughs> so basically those tools are going to only get better. And then now people are going to be like, wait a second, these people all sound way too like perfect. It's like the, the Stepford wives. Equivalent. <laughs> it's just like every podcast host is like, just never makes any mistake and just sounds buttery smooth and all this kind of stuff. I think it'll move to live in the same way that a musician, like, okay, CDs go away and streaming and pirating, although streaming has actually grown to be a pretty big chunk of revenue for a lot of these artists. But where do they make their big money? They make their big money in the scarce thing, right? And we, we talked actually last week, Eric and I, a little bit about NFTs. And I, I can see the argument why like someone sees like a monkey JPEG and then are like, okay, why, why is someone spending $50,000 on this? Like I can just save it on my computer and have it. But, but scarcity drives humans. It's, it's how economics work. And, and I think so in a, in a world of infinite perfect content, uh, people will seek the scarce or the authentic and how that manifests. I mean, if you can figure that out, you can make a lot of money building a company, but my sense is that, that, that is like a rooted human behavior that we we crave. And so people people will look for that. And so I think it will be, I'm sure there will be AI, like there will be an AI Rosh Limbaugh that people will just like be super big fans of. And people won't even know that it was an AI. Like it just, you know, they will have created it before and there will kind of be a whole act. But I think that there there will always be opportunities as a as like an actual human to appeal to other humans based on that kind of authenticity, status, and scarcity. And and it's just the form of that. And I, I'm not exactly sure how to play out. I know Eric's cooking up uh, some AI podcast hosts. That's, that's the, the way to grow his empire here. And we and we know Miami is now the, the capital of all things hard tech. So you have the best AI engineers in Miami to help <laughs> you work on on building that, that podcast AI company. Exactly. Uh, Michelle, if, if you were magically mayor of San Francisco, uh, what would your platform be? Three things. <laughs> You're not running though. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Uh, one, right to shelter law. We need 8,000 beds like yesterday. We have some, I believe the term is injunction. We have a court order right now as a city that we cannot basically ask anybody to disband their public camping sites unless if we have a, a place to offer them. And we don't have enough beds because we've poured an enormous amount of money into permanent supportive housing at the expense of temporary shelter. So um, I think it is like completely unconscionable that a city as wealthy as ours can't offer basic food, clothing, and shelter to people who are very, very sick or down and out. Um, so first thing would be a right to shelter law. 
Michelle, can you expand that for the audience? I don't, I don't think people appreciate the difference between permanent supportive housing and temporary and why that's important. So New York City shelters 65,000 people. We shelter 2,000, meaning there's 2,000 beds that are available for, you know, if someone is like in the streets, it's pouring rain, our cops go up to them and say, hey, like, do you need a place to go? Like in New York, they have a place to send people. They have, they have hotels, they have beds, they have shelters all over New York City. They have um, these vans that will come pick people up and they're able to enforce some laws because of this. Uh, San Francisco does not have that. So right now, the city is prohibited from clearing any of these drug encampments, which I believe are extremely dangerous to have. I think we didn't have this tent situation before COVID. And so I understand, you know, we we allowed the tents during COVID because we shut a lot of the shelters, but now the shelters are back open. Um, so I think we should have absolutely a bed for every person that is here. And then obviously much more group housing, long-term housing as well. But the current set of beliefs is and again, this is sort of the, the far hard left activists believe that shelters are just warehousing people and that what people really need are long-term homes. And so they've been fighting against shelter creation for decades, pushing increasingly for long-term housing. And so what we have is like a few thousand people in long-term housing, like mostly in the Tenderloin and these SRO hotels, single residence occupancy hotels, sort of a few people luck out and everyone else is in the streets. That's basically our current strategy. So I think that's wrong. <laughs> I think we should have a basic level of care guaranteed. We can absolutely afford it. So I would, I would number one thing would be a right to shelter law, meaning we um, would be required by law to have a shelter bed for each homeless person who's here. And I think we should have that statewide as well. Most of the East Coast has that. And that's a lot of it. People say, oh, it's because it the temperatures drop so much that people will die if they don't have shelter. But people do die when they don't have shelter here. They're like tents catching on fire. You've got a lack of... Um, like we don't have running water or sewage, like people get disease. They are like overdosing behind closed doors in the tents and no one knows for days. Like this, this entire tent situation is out of control. So like number one would be right to shelter and addressing the, the situation in the tents. So I guess number two then is banning camping. I think it's completely dangerous. I think it's leading to a surge in overdose deaths. I think something like 70% of the overdose deaths happened indoors or behind closed doors. Um, indoors as in intense. You know, I don't think actually that 65%, I don't know if it includes tents or not. If it doesn't include tents, that probably means that about 80% of overdoses happened behind a closed door. Um, but so I need to check on that and I'll ask, uh, I have, I know exactly who to ask that question to, but, um, but yes, the majority of the overdoses are happening inside. Um, the other, wait, wait, so just so I actually understand. So if they're not happening in a tent, where would they be happening inside if we don't have enough shelter? SRO hotels are the biggest locations. And and do you do you want to explain to the audience the historical significance of the SROs in San Francisco specifically? I think that's actually an interesting historical anomaly. San Francisco had this economy that just exploded around 1848. There were like a couple thousand people living here before 1848 when gold was discovered. The minute gold was discovered, you know, every newspaper in the world was saying like gold discovered in California and millions, like hundreds of thousands of people flocked here. So the city just exploded overnight. And actually there were tons of tents in the streets at that time. And there was, it was mayhem. Like, and if you want to read a book about that time, I highly recommend reading um, Season of the Witch. It, uh, it, it goes into the whole history of um, San Francisco during those early years. Also, 
Um, there's a great book called Barbary Coast, which talks about like the crime in the underworld around the time of gold rush years. And um, it was a time of vigilante justice. You know, the police force was just like, completely ineffective. Um, there was a lot of chaos back then. But eventually the chaos had to come under control, right? Ultimately, there wasn't nearly as much gold as people had thought there was. So you have all these people now who've like gotten in their covered wagon and trekked across the United States, maybe lost a family member or two along the way. And now they're in San Francisco and they have nothing to do. So the city an economy started sort of naturally happening. Like it's, I think it's very um, innate human desire to like build and create. So all of a sudden San Francisco becomes this port town. And there were all these shipbuilding uh, facilities coming together. They're building making factories for rope, but no one had places to live. So the city allowed people to build these hotels called single SROs, single resident occupancy hotels. And the way that they're built, we have about 500, I think we have like 530 of them in San Francisco. Um, the way that they're built is you have these tiny rooms, they're like eight by 10, shared bathrooms per floor. And so, and this is where factory workers basically were housed. So people um, who might've been like failed, failed in, in finding gold now are like, can rent a room, work in a factory and kind of start to claw their way out of the debt that they've gone into trying to become um, a miner. So the city has these hotels and they're historical sites and they're protected as historical sites, meaning you can't really renovate them very easily. There's all this code. Um, in the Tenderloin specifically, I actually think there's only like one or maybe no um, single family homes. Like the Tenderloin is zoned to support having this type of housing and not other types of housing. Um, and the city, because they're protected, what's happened is you basically have all these decrepit hotels that are like just absolutely disgusting, like falling apart, have roaches and bed bugs and like, you know, peeling paint. And if you look, actually, this is actually where my interest in San Francisco all began. I started reading the reviews of SROs on TripAdvisor because I would drive around. This is like, I came back to San Francisco after a couple of years in Boston in 2015. And after you live in Boston, which is just this pristine, clean, beautiful, very highly functioning city where you don't see any of the issues really that you see here. I show up back in San Francisco and I'm like, what is going on here? This is 2015, Prop 47 had just gone through. So all of a sudden, you know, now like a lot of different types of crime is legal, stealing up to $950, drug possession. And San Francisco looked the worst it ever had, and especially in the Tenderloin. So I started researching these SROs, reading the reviews, and it and it sort of became clear that these these hotels where the city contracts to have people stay at about $200 a night often. I mean, it depends on the contract, but they'll have these contracts where they guarantee a certain number of beds for residents of San Francisco. And they have become sort of long-term housing facilities for people who may or may not be here, who may or may not be contributing in any way to the city. Like most of the people I think don't work, but they're basically long-term supportive housing. I don't know if you can really argue that they're that supportive when something like, I think during pandemic, something like 35% of overdoses happened in an SRO. I'd have to double check that number, but that's sort of I, my, my belief. I, I would, yeah, I would shut down the SROs. I'm like, I don't, I don't see any reason. I think that they all need to be renovated and brought up to code. I think we should be giving that housing to students and nurses and teachers and police officers and firemen. I don't understand why our city has decided we're just going to have this entrenched couple thousand people living in the SROs, doing drugs in the streets. I think it creates like an epicenter of the drug crisis. I think that like the Tenderloin needs to be completely reimagined and uh, those hotels should be used as city housing for like families, for poor people, not just for people who want to sort of live off the city, do drugs and wreak havoc.
couldn't have said it better myself. A lot of people would say that what I just said is highly, highly offensive. Right. So those people, those people don't live in reality, and and well, and they, they live in reality. <laughs> well, like so so. But the other thing I think worth adding is after World War II, most of the returning servicemen, and I think it was all men at that point, but maybe some women. They they actually stayed in those as a as a place to take a shower and and stay and so so th there is precedent for actually using it for people who are actually contributing to society in some some level and and to your point the combination of like California zoning and like everything is a historical site and you can't change things it is is absolutely crazy whereas if you were to try to go build something new they would be dinging you because your wheelchair ramp isn't the exact perfect angle. And you would have to do another, you know, you'd have to repour the concrete or whatever. But th these these historical uh, artifacts are completely fine when they're completely not up to code. And, and you know, essentially they're modern modern opium dens, right? Fentanyl use facilities at this point. And I'm sure you can find some situations where they've they've really benefited some person or they got them off the street. But as a percentage of the overall people population of people living in those, like you, <laughs> any any. Any facility where a regular part of that facility's existence is overdose deaths probably needs to be rethought from first principles. Yes. I personally believe that allowing people who have overdosed 10, 20, 50 times, handing them a hotel room or an SRO room, straws, needles, foil, and $800 a month in the middle of the most permissive open-air drug market on the planet is a recipe for death. I truly believe that our policies, the more we spend, the more people will die with our current strategy and approach. I think, and that is because, I mean, that is because the drugs have changed, but I mean, let's be clear, like kind of everybody knows this and there is a lack of political will to go stand up to the activists who are pushing tooth and nail to keep going and double down. I slightly disagree that that like um, not slightly. I, I I disagree that I don't think the average person knows how bad drugs are relative to even ten years ago. I think the average San Franciscan knows, intuitively, sees it. Well, they, they they might see it, but they but they might be wondering, okay, well, what what set of policies has changed here? And I think you've outlined it on this podcast so pretty pretty well. Is we've had a change in the toxicity of these drugs, with if anything worse decision making on the policy side. Like, what was the proposition that got put in place in the 2020 election uh, that taxed the GMV of companies in San Francisco? Prop C. Oh, Prop C. Mark Benioff got all woke and he, he you know, he said, oh, you know, pay your fair share. Companies that are disproportionately affected by that, Square, Stripe, Coinbase. How many of those companies have a headquarters, you know, despite Jack Dorsey being, you know, all the stuff that he said, none of those companies have headquarters in San Francisco anymore because they don't want to pay that. So this was going to double the amount of homeless funding for the city, but it was going to be something like 600 million additional. So it was like over now a billion dollars a year in homeless service funding. And now those companies don't even exist. So they, they took those those jobs and all of the, the, the you know, secondary jobs that were associated with having actual office tenants. And now you have a 40% occupancy or, you know, uh, vacancy rate of, of, you know, central office space in the city. Yeah, I think that the way that that, prop was structured was flawed and that it disproportionately hurt fintech companies because it was based on GMV and fintech companies have so much, you know, uh, gross, um, 
merchandise value for those who don't use that term often. Um, but yeah, fintech companies have so much money flowing through them that to be taxed on the amount flowing through the system instead of profit hurts the fintech companies significantly more than software companies that have um, lower revenue, but much higher margins. So yes, there was, I think that was a flaw in it. Additionally, I'd say Prop C was in a pre-pandemic, pre-remote world. Uh, it was, you know, that prop is... Um, assumes all the companies want to be in San Francisco for the talent, not that they're hiring internationally for half the jobs now. I mean, things have changed so much. Actually, I've been thinking I really want to um, if, see if I can get Mark as a guest on Notes from the Front to talk about Prop C. I think we probably do need to reevaluate it. Wasn't there a story, by the way, that that Salesforce is now removing some of their office space in Salesforce yes, Tower? Yes, they are significantly reducing their footprint in the city. But again, I mean... Things have changed in a remote world. And the city, I mean, you have to look at Salesforce and say it's not just what Mark wants. He has fiduciary duty to his shareholders. Like there's a board that's an enormous company. And so, I mean, I think you look back at how, yes, he was very aggressively critiquing Jack Dorsey. And I think um, who else? There was a couple other CEOs who were like, this is going to really hurt fintech. And the response was something along, it was kind of a moral shaming response of like, well, don't you care about San Francisco? And yeah, people care about San Francisco, but at the end of the day, like when you're a big company and you have a board and you have employees, your fiduciary duty is not to the city of San Francisco. It's to the people who hold the stock, many of which are your employees. And so to say, we're going to take on this additional enormous tax and it's going to take all away all of your guys' bottom line and we're going to pay you all less because of it, you know, or not pay you more. Like that's going to be a difficult can I, I would do want to get back to the two other things I would do if I were mayor. Yeah, please. No, it's good. <laughs> all right. It would basically, the strategy would basically be primarily around solving the drug crisis, which I think is at the center of our issues as a city. I think if we were to solve the drug crisis, probably 80% of our city's issues would disappear. Um, so there'd be three things. One is the right to shelter. Two is enforcing the laws that already exist. So enforcing, once you have enough shelter beds and you actually can enforce the camping laws, I do think it should be illegal to camp in the streets of San Francisco, I view the sidewalk as public property. I think that the public owns the sidewalk just as public owns the parks. Um, I don't think anyone should be able to turn that into private property. And when you build, when you take a whole t huge tent and it blocks the entire sidewalk, there's you're, it's, not, it's not a victimless crime. If someone is elderly, if someone uses a cane to walk, children, people in wheelchairs can't get through that sidewalk, they're either going into the street or they're not gonna walk at all. And I think this has tremendous, like, consequences for our society if people aren't walking around the city. Um, so I would say like enforce the laws around camping and, and also enforce the laws around drug dealing. The third thing is I think um, we need to become the number one city in the world to enter into re drug recovery. And so something that really bothers me is when people are like, oh, we already have so much money. We already spend so much money on homelessness. We should spend less. And I'm my response is, I actually think we should spend more, but we should spend on very different things. I think we should be spending on helping people get into treatment. I think we should have 24-7 available drug treatment and mandatory treatment for people who commit crimes associated with drug use. And I would love to see our city become the number one place in the world to come to like get clean and get your life together. It would be great if our jail had like job training programs and treatment and therapy. And if San Francisco were known for a place to go to heal and to sort of re-enter into the world, um, as opposed to the place to go to have the highest chance of dying from overdose. So yeah, I'm, I'm particularly passionate about this 
issue right now. I just, I, it's very hard for me to be here in this city that I care so deeply about and watch our politicians turning it into what I believe is kind of like a death trap for addicts. Well, I'd vote for you if, if you're if you're looking well, for votes. Michelle, why don't you run either for mayor, or for supervisor, or for something? Like, why don't why don't you get get involved politically? Yeah. So I get this question all the time because I'm, you know, I talk a lot about politics. People are like, why don't you run for office? I think that there's a skill set required for office that it's unclear if I have, namely <laughs> being more political. I've um, pissed off a lot of people with the things I've said. I think that I have a lot of room for personal growth on this front. I can say things I that come out the wrong way and um, really anger people. I think the chance that I would be elected in San Francisco is very low, uh, given some of my beliefs and the fact that I... Um, I'm not sort of politically aligned with the majority of the people here. Additionally, I don't want that job. It just looks so brutal. When I think about the 3 a.m. phone call on, you know, the city is flooding and, you know, the electrical, like all the all the stuff that's going on. I actually think London Breed or Mayor, Mayor Breed um, has a lot of strengths as a mayor. And, the, and I look at her and I think there's no way I believe that I could do a better job than she um, or even like a fraction. I don't have experience in politics. I, I think maybe one day I would run for supervisor once I have more leadership experience under my belt. But what I'd really like to see are more people with tremendous leadership experience stepping up. So people who've run really big companies, who've managed really complex P&Ls. Like I would love to see those people running um, and I like the role I play right now. I like that I'm sort of like a, I don't know, provocateur on Twitter. Um, I like being an activist. And I don't think I want to make that my full-time job. So basically, it's a mixture of I don't want the job. I don't think I'd be very good at it. And I don't think I would win. <laughs> well, let me let me just outside opinion. So if you don't want the job, that 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 ends the conversation. But hypothetically, on the other points that you brought up, one, I just say that sounds like imposter syndrome and it's like no one is qualified to do anything. Just like go do it. Like I actually think people put way too much emphasis on prior experience or credentials. Like you have a handle on the issues. You have tactical things to go solve. And like you, you, you're kind of able to articulate all this stuff in a way that, frankly, I don't hear many people do. So I would say that, like, don't don't wait for some you know number of experience like in the in the vein of Silicon Valley. If, if you want to go do it, I think you're going to find a lot of people on the supportive side. That said, if you don't want to do it, you you don't want to do it. But yeah, I, I, I think that the the challenge with politics is, I think, going to another issue, though, is I think a lot of capable people look at that job and it goes, it, it, there's not a ton of uh, upside here, right? It's like, I I know what the issues are. I, I probably, if I, you put me in, in position to, to actually go solve them, I feel like I could. But there's the slog of the campaign and and just like the brutalness of being the kind of public guy like that. And then when you're there, it's not as easy as if you're running a company and you're the CEO, you get to make a decision. You have to work through the bureaucracy and the process and, and things like that. And so it requires a very special type of person who's willing to deal and be patient enough to deal with all that. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I would say... I, I think that the challenge with San Francisco, and I always say this to Solana as well, if not you, who? Like, it, these people just don't materialize, right? Like, Well, there, I would argue we have some really great people right now in office in San Francisco. In office right now? Yeah, they're just outnumbered. So it's an open-air drug market. Fan. I don't, I don't know if they've, <laughs> they've materially changed. It's the... about the balance of power. So it's about the progressives having power. 
I think the next election, things are going to change. We, I think that the moderates completely lost their voice and were bullied into silence during the Trump years. My goal on Twitter since day one has been, we got to bring back the moderate voice in this town. I want to contribute to that. And like, if you were to ask me, I started tweeting about San Francisco. So actually when I left my job in January, 2020, I wrote an email out to, you know, like all the people I'd worked with at Thumbtack explaining my reasons for leaving. And I said, I have two goals. One, I want to explore this idea around a startup that teaches sort of like home ec and shop digitally. Um, so life skills, that was called life school. It, it, I ended up shutting it down. And the second thing is I want to become more of an activist in San Francisco. And if you were to have talked to me in like March, 2020, April, May, and, and I was getting these questions like, what's your goal? Why are you tweeting so much? It's like, my goal is to start a moderate movement. That was my goal. It's like the moderates have no voice in San Francisco. They've been bullied into silence. I think that voice is bigger now. Um, there are a lot of people who've started speaking up. Gary Tan, David Sachs. There's been a lot of people like, you know, look at Stephen Buss and the Grow SF, Together SF. There are these new nonprofits. Like the moderate voice is the Asian community has just come back. Like they were huge when I was growing up in San Francisco. They, there was like a commonly understood it was commonly understood that you did not win office without the support of the Asian community in San Francisco. I think they got very quiet after Ed Lee died. That was our mayor um, a ways back. They're back. I, I don't think there's any individuals that have necessarily like become really prominent figures in the Asian community, um, like the way that Rose Pack or Ed Lee was, but that is simmering. We are very, very close. The Board of Supervisors is 11 seats, and right now there are um, six progressives and five moderates. And of those five moderates, one is kind of like unclear if it's actually, I'd say two or three of them. It's they're sort of progressive slash moderate. There's really only one true consistently moderate person on the board. And that's Catherine Stephanie, um, or Stefani. She's my district supervisor, district two. I'm a huge fan of her. I think she's fantastic. I'm also a fan of some of the more, a bunch of the more progressive leaning members of the board. I'm a huge fan of Raphael Mandelman. Um, I really like Asha Safai. I'm getting to know some of the others. Like I'm, ex I'm excited about Joel and Guardio, and I'm, I'm really excited about Matt Dorsey. And those are two seats that were held by progressives before and have flipped to moderate. So now all of a sudden you're in a situation where a vote can actually be tilted. If one of the progressives on the board tips moderate on an issue, things can happen. But right now the issue we have in San Francisco, we've got a moderate mayor and a progressive board and they're kind of fighting and blocking one another. And it's making us, it's making it very difficult to get things done. So my hope is that in the next election, we get to at least six moderates on the board. And then we have, a, ideally we also have a moderate mayor. And then I think things start to change very rapidly. Well, I'm optimistic that you're optimistic. The, the one question I have for you is of all the people in San Francisco on, on the mayor and the supervisors, who, what's the, the biggest Twitter following? Like just total number of followers. The mayor, mayor, mayor breed. What? hundred thousand? Yeah. 000? I think she's got like 120 or 132,000. This, this is the other thing is if you get the right candidate who has enough juice on Twitter, because people don't read news, they're, they're only getting it through these algos and they have good juice on TikTok and Instagram. They get, start to set the agenda. I, I really, I really believe that like the, the candidate that actually figures that out at the local level, because it is a national issue because Fox News focuses on it. So you can get a lot of juice in the algorithms and these algorithms are going to favor the people in a local area and the connectivity. Hang on, explain, what I, back up for a second. You've lost me. What, what about juice? So if you're the, if you're the person with the, the, the like, here's how to fix San Francisco, here's how to get rid of the open air drug market, right? You are going to have national fans, like people who live in Jacksonville, Florida, who watch Tucker, 
and listen about how bad San Francisco is and your tweet about like how bad San Francisco is shows up and they hit light or, or, or follow that overall Twitter juice. And, and you'd have the progressive say, oh, outside influences, Republican, you know, backed or whatever. But the reality is, is, is actually having a massive amount of distribution on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, YouTube is a competitive advantage. And I think yes. like AOC understands this. Trump understands this. But I, I think that the average local politician doesn't really grok that. I mean, just look at how easily Mike Solana can ratio Dean Preston. Right. And and so that is the arb, in my view, of if you want to change San Francisco, is you have a national interest in this city because it is a just like the set of failed policies. And if you can be the the equivalent of Giuliani and not necessarily actually Rudy Giuliani and the set of exact policies that Rudy Giuliani put in place, because going back to the New York thing, they did stop and frisk and a whole bunch of stuff that after it did all the, the things to make New York all clean, then they were like, oh, well, that's racist. And and whether or not that's true, but like you can argue like they, they did stop, the, they lower the crime rate in, in New York City. And so so going back to San Francisco, you need, I think, a shelling point person who has a national audience because people do not consume things at a local level, they consume it at a, a platform level. And so you need someone with the juice. And that's why I always say to Solana, it's like, you, you've got more followers than any of these people. Like that's who the candidate needs to be to set the agenda. Yes, you do need the, of the 11 supervisors, you need six, but the, in terms of being able to drive the kind of like movement, I think you need, you need, reach on on across those like major social media platforms that's my two cents from the side okay i'm gonna i'm gonna share with you the alternative point of view because i heard it recently i talked to someone who is going to be running for mayor and it hasn't been announced yet and this person said i've asked my advisors should i care about twitter because i have a very small twitter following and like i thought i think maybe i should grow it and the advisors are like don't worry about it only 10 percent of san francisco is on twitter Okay, so my pushback is the moment you start listening to advisors as a politician, <laughs> like say what really? you want about Trump. How many? How much did Trump listen to advisors? <laughs> I it, have it, no it, idea. And and so here's the thing: I don't think AOC listens to advisors. Like I, I think you can blame the, all these people. The, the world is shifting to a world where online version of TikTok populism wins, and and so I think that like. The politicians at every level that figure this out and actually go direct to their base, I think that they're going to win. And I think that they're going to be unassailable because they don't have to worry about how the media covers them. It's how their followers perceive them. And you're going direct. Well, I mean, if anyone is going to like theoretically agree with you on this, it would be me. Most of my followers are not in San Francisco, even though I mostly focus on San Francisco issues. But because you get so much engagement from that national audience, I'm sure you now have disproportionate impact in San Francisco. And the people who aren't on Twitter in San Francisco are either aware of who you are or are downstream of different things that you are proposing on Twitter. The Twitter is the battlefield, and you need your international and, and, and national audience to help boost you in that battlefield, right? Every like is like a little bit more armor for, <laughs> for your point of view. Like, that's why we have these dunks, ratios, all that stuff. I know it sounds stupid, but like, that's the It doesn't sound stupid at all. It's it's a totally bizarre paradigm. It's like, that's let's a game. Get, you know what? It's a to I, no, I've, I think it's so interesting. It's You think about like, okay, when people are like, you need to run for office. I'm like, I can't imagine going door knocking. That just feels so weird. Like, 
walk around a neighborhood and go up to people's homes and ring their doorbell when they could be on Zoom? Like, <laughs> hard no. Like I, but I DM with thousands of, I've DM'd with thousands of people in the past year. Boom. That's, that's, that's the modern version of door knocking. Sliding into DMs is better than knocking on a door. I do DM a lot of people. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, th I'm such a fan of Twitter. I'm like, should I try to go work there? I, I, no. I think it gets such a bad rap. I'm like, we need to save its reputation. Like this is where like the, 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 this is where it happened. This is the room where it happens. It is. It is the room where it happens. It's just a complete and public, public site. Yeah. Well, sorry. So the other thing, and, and you were actually in that, that famous room where you and Mike Solana were having a clubhouse where Chezza, you know, showed up and, and kind of tried to gaslight you guys. But that's another thing. You know, I know people are down on clubhouse, but, but just take live audio as an example, built into Twitter now. So all the more reason to have a big Twitter following is if you were running for mayor and you actually wanted to just say, I'm not going to listen to the traditional thing. And I want to do a modern version of retail politics doing a live stream every single night of your campaign where you spend one hour and you're talking about the issues just like you would a radio host and you're simulcasting that on YouTube, you're simulcasting like on every platform, on Instagram live or whatever the, the things. I think you might not win the first election, but if you were to do that again, you're going to build this like huge following that's just going to steamroll through the traditional stuff. I just think people in politics are extremely risk averse to trying things outside of the, the norms of this is how you win as a candidate. And that's, I think, why Trump was able to blow up the whole thing last time, because he did not play by the same set of rules. And and look, he lost to Biden, who is as, as like rule following from a traditional standpoint. But personally, I think that that was just an indictment of like, you know, four years of just nonstop Trump versus like Biden ran some amazing campaign. Oh, I love this conversation. I think this is fascinating. <laughs> I think as soon as AOC is ready to run, she's just going to she's going to roll through a lot of people because she gets this stuff natively relative to to most politicians. And so, you know, I don't agree with her policies. I'm very scared of her because she she understands in the same way that Kennedy figured out TV versus Nixon, like new new paradigm. Like we're not even at the sound TV soundbite anymore. Like Trump in office, every single day you just wake up, watch the TV and decided to change the narrative by tweeting. And, and so everything is downstream of Twitter. And so like there's another example. OK, I think that there's a way. So I'm look, I'm right now trying to figure out um, Huh. my advisors, the people close to me in my life are strongly encouraging me to step out of the Twitter world and like take it up a notch, be more sophisticated, write an op-ed that would be published in the Chronicle or the Atlantic, like basically stop talking to the plebeians and start, you know, speaking to the elite, which like isn't really my natural proclivity. Like I don't wake up in the morning and want to write op-eds. I wake up in the morning and I just start tweeting from bed. Like majority of my threads that have gone very viral, I wrote from my phone. Um, even actually uh, with not even on the Twitter app, the Twitter web, because I always am deleting the app to force myself off. It's so addictive. Um, to, yeah. And actually I don't really want to use that word. It's just very compelling, but so, so, so can I, can I offer, they want you to write it on the op-ed because that's, that's like polite society thinks that's still something that's, that's, that's 20th century thinking, right? That's like Maginot line of, of media. A viral Twitter thread is more upstream. A Substack is more upstream than all of those things. But polite society still exists. And there's a set of people who are not on. They don't matter. Trump shows Ooh, that they don't matter. I don't Republicans know Republicans are the ultimate that. polite society and they don't matter. They, they got beat. They, it, 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 populism wins. <laughs> it's, populism it, wins. Okay, so there's, there's, an, there's an example of someone who played both, uh, bridged that world and it's Ronald Reagan. He wrote a thousand radio addresses. Have you ever listened to any of his radio addresses? 
I've never listened to a Reagan radio address. Two or three minutes each on various issues. He wrote them himself. His wife helped him. He would practice them and he would share them. If you want to, um, there's a book called Reagan in His Own Voice that I think it has like a couple dozen of his best radio addresses. And they were on everything from environmentalism to, you know, what's going on internationally. And it, it, I mean, he, there's there's such a range. He even like makes fun of certain things like, oh, all these people with their hyphenated names. What's going to happen when their children with a hyphenated name marry someone with a hyphenated name? Now they have four last names. He covered an enormous range of topics. And I think it appealed to both highbrow and populist, or I don't know if I'm using those words right. It was, um, he was able to bridge the worlds. It was sophist he was sophisticated thinker that was not just rants. I think I aspire to do something more like that. I don't think I just want to be on Twitter, duking it out, and that's it for the foreseeable future. Have you read the, the what is his name, Dan Perlman or Nixon Land? The one in between the interregnum period and then Reaganland. Mm -mm. Oh, you you should read this, right? That was the Roger Ailes thing I mentioned, like in '68 when he shows up and he like, "Hey Nixon, you got smoked in TV in in '60. Let me show you how to use TV to your advantage." Um, but the Reagan stuff, Reagan, when he was first when he was governor of California and he was competing against Nixon, he was I mean he was as Trumpy as it got for that era. So I, I think he might have moderated uh, over time, but I, I do think that we're also seeing this again through the lens of if you if you put forty years between something and now, it it just looks a little more quaint. But I, I think relative to the time period, he was considered pretty brash. From uh, if you were a liberal uh, looking at Reagan, going, "Oh my goodness, look at this guy." Oh, it makes sense. I was just reading the other day about how he did these radio dresses. You know, he wrote them, he practiced them over and over again. Um, like he would, and I would imagine he did that in order to fight against the urge to be brash, right? I mean, this is something. Well, he was also an actor, right? He, he understood the value of production. When you are brash publicly, like I have been, sometimes you say something in the wrong way and it just becomes a firestorm. I've had two moments where this happened in a really big way. One was a tweet about how I was at a party and someone told me that they moved from San Francisco to New York because their friend's dog walker told them that the dogs were getting addicted to meth poop at the park. Um, now I wrote, and I wrote this tweet that's like last night I had a party, heard this. And to me, the reason to share that was like, can you believe this is what people are saying? Like, how can people be speaking like this at a dinner party? Like, this is a problem that this is what this is the rumors happening. And actually, I don't know if I was saying this is the problem, but I shared it. Right. It's sort of I shared a rumor, basically. And people went bananas about it, like everything from you're purposely spreading lies to, you know, demonize the homeless to it, there was such a range of reaction, but it was it, it, millions and millions and millions of views. And then the media latched on and basically all these journalists started writing articles about how I was lying, misinformation, fake news, the damages that can be done from it. I went and, I went and dug into this issue. Turns out actually, so dogs are not really addicted to the poop. I don't know. I talked, I, I talked to the dog walker. I went and got in touch with him. He said the dogs are definitely eating stuff at the, at the park, including poop and various things. They do get sick. They have to be crated. It's, it's not true that meth comes through feces, more likely cannabis that comes through feces. Meth comes th 
through urine. So if a dog were to lick urine at the park that had meth in it, that might lead to a problem. And interestingly, when I got a dog recently and I asked my vet on our first meeting, what should I be careful about with this dog in San Francisco? Is there anything, you know, unique to San Francisco I should be worrying about? And she said, drugs. I said, what do you mean? She's like, the, the number one issue we have that when um, dogs are coming into the emergency room here is drugs. And I said, oh, are you serious? She's like, what do you mean? Yes. And I said, oh, you're not trolling me? Like, you know, I'm sort of got a lot of heat for mentioning this. She's like, no, it's a real issue. I said, what drug? Meth. She said the number, yeah, this is like one of the top vet places in San Francisco. So I, I, one of my, I asked one of my friends yesterday, I was like, or the last weekend, I asked him, if I were to run for office, like, what do you think would happen? Just theoretically, District 2 supervisor, you know, Catherine, Stephanie's running. Um, like, if I were to run, what would happen? He's like, people would send out that tweet on a mailer to every, your opponent would send out that tweet on a mailer to every single home in District 2. And people would say, I, we can't have this crazy person in office. And, and every dog owner would vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but look, I, I, I have to run... I, Michelle, this was amazing. I think you have uh, an incredible handle on a wide variety of issues uh, that are really plaguing San Francisco. And if people would just listen to people like you, um, maybe the city could fix itself. I, I, having lived there for 10 years, I, I, I hope I hope it can. Um, but thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. This has been great. And the idea that you're constantly out there on Twitter and like, putting points out and being people to respond out having more energy than your opponents is actually a, a strategy. <laughs> actually, Trump is very good at that. And so is AOC. It's just like, they can't, they don't get another break from you another day, another, like, it's just like constant, right? That's what Elon is so good at. And I think if you have a proclivity for that, if you don't want to run for office as an activist on Twitter, I actually think that's a superpower. Your ability to just like wake up and say, it's like the classic Mike Sun. What, what thing on the internet can I say to piss off as many people as possible? But that's true. And if you have the ability to take that every day, I mean, it's, it's, it wears on you. That's a superpower. Because most people can't handle that level of stress. It has taken a toll. But <laughs> also, yeah, I mean, like, it's better than just being quiet and angry. Boom. All right, I got to run. Yeah, same, same good. here. Good, good stuff, Michelle. Yeah. Talk soon. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. And it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes for founders could be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering Moment of Zen listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash MOZ and use code MOZ for your $1,000 credit. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts 
to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 